Hey everyone, Ray Robinson here, host of the Unsensitive Podcast. You're probably wondering, what does unsensitive mean? Well, it's a completely made up word to define a topic that is insensitive to talk about at family gatherings and parties, but you talk about them anyway. New episodes drop every other Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, part of the Fearscape Media Network. There is no question that something is here, lurking, somewhere in the darkened corners. But how will we ever find out what it is? We need to look, always, and never stop, no matter what stands in our way, no matter what others may think. Explore the darkness. Shine light into it. Join the red strings and the silver threads. Everything is connected. Somehow. I am Mark L. Watson. This is Peer Beyond the Veil. The interest, uh, interest in the paranormal leads back to uh, childhood. As I uh, grew up uh, learning how to read, I would grab anything I could to be able to read something. And my uh, grandmother had a subscription to a paranormal magazine called Fate Magazine in the house, uh, which had you know, stories, everything from ghosts to lake monsters to UFOs. So I was reading that, you know, four years old, five years old. Uh, so I was exposed to the world of the strange and the unknown very, uh, very early. Uh, the interest has stayed with me. Uh, uh, the magazines led to uh, books on parapsychology from the library. Uh, just became fascinated with learning everything I could, you know, as a youthful armchair researcher. Uh, as I, I got older, uh, I got uh, a job in law enforcement, was a police officer, a uh, couple different agencies, moved up through the ranks. Uh, and as, I, uh, as people I worked with knew that I had an interest in, in ghosts and the paranormal, uh, different cops I would meet, uh, my department and others would say, hey, Randy, you know, there's, a, uh, there's this haunted house you know, on our patrol beat, or we know, uh, you know somebody that says they've had poltergeist activity. You know, we haven't known anybody to, you know, to bring in and look at it until we've met you. Uh, so that was my first uh, involvement in cases was through the, uh, the police network and uh, you know, people coming to me and saying, hey, can you just you know, look into this for us? Uh, so I started going out and doing field investigations. That was uh, late 80s, uh, very early 90s. So I started doing uh, field work. When the Society for Psychical Research was founded in London back in 1882, it provided a hub for scientists and scholars of multiple disciplines to meet and study the fields of the paranormal, as it was then quite recently termed. It studied hypnotism, telepathy and spiritualism, and gathered them into what would become known as parapsychology. As study continued and the disciplines changed and evolved, so too did the understanding of how it all worked. 
There are, of course, an endless amount of theories and no concrete proof, and whilst the mainstream media circulates numerous shows on ghost hunting and provides its own evidence of spirits communicating from beyond the grave, sending messages, manifesting as shadows and moving objects, appearing to psychics in visions and communicating beyond the void. It's still quite widely theorised in scientific circles, even within the field of parapsychology, that much of what is seen and heard could well be created in, from or with our own minds. That's not to say, of course, that it should not be treated as paranormal or supernatural. If our mind truly can project thoughts to such a degree, create visions that are seen by more than merely our own eyes, then that is surely as incredible as any proof of life after death. However, all that said, a true scientific mind will remain open to all possibilities without closing any avenues off. It's perfectly possible that there are many explanations all at play at the same time. It may be that there is a life after death and a way for the past to communicate or manifest, but that there's also a yet undiscovered way for the human brain to project itself onto an external canvas and create from seemingly nothing. It may be that there is life living beyond our planet, and they may indeed be visiting us, but that there are also cerebral anomalies that hallucinate things in the sky or patch over gaps in consciousness with images of alien creatures. Our brain, our science, and the massive lack of understanding of both leave much to be discovered and more questions than answers. That's why we do this, and probably why you're listening. My guest tonight is a researcher, field investigator and journalist who covers the fields of ghost and poltergeist activity. An ex-law enforcement officer, he approaches everything he does with a keen eye for detail and a critical and levelled approach, and, crucially, he's not quick to categorise such experiences as pertaining to ghosts, spirits, or any of their like. Randy Liebeck joins us tonight to discuss his work in the field, his study of parapsychology, and how he is just as ready to debunk or to reconsider the evidence as he is to peer beyond the veil. Uh, my uh, grandmother, who lived in uh, North Carolina, uh, I, I lived with my uh, parents in New Jersey. I would go visit my uh, grandmother. Uh, she'd have Fate magazine. I'd bring issues back home. My mother in New Jersey had an encyclopedia set called Man, Myth, and Magic, which is a uh, uh, A through Z uh, set of encyclopedias, you know, covering the entire, you know, Fordian and paranormal you know, world. Uh, uh, so my mother obviously had enough of an interest, you know, to, to buy an encyclopedia set. We never discussed things uh, in the family, uh, and I never really thought about, hey, it, it, it's unusual that you know my, my grandmother and mother have this interest. It was just, that's what I grew up with in the, in the house. And when we went on vacation to my grandmother's. So it was, uh, well, I was exposed to it early on. I just didn't think of anything unusual about it. I just thought it was some fascinating stuff. Uh, I found out later in adult life that uh, uh, my mother had had some uh, paranormal experiences and that uh, uh, in our family, uh, uh, my mother's grandmother, uh, who lived in, I believe, rural eastern Tennessee, uh, up in the mountains, uh, she had a reputation uh, back in the old days of being a, uh, uh, 
a wise woman, uh, you know, a, what we might call a, a witch or a, uh, you know, a healer, somebody who had psychic abilities and folks would go to her, you know, to find out, you know, what was going to happen with their lives, how the crops were going to turn out. So I, I never knew that, you know, growing up. This is stuff I found out, you know, more recently, you know, talking with uh, you know, family members. Uh, I wish I knew you know, early on. Uh, yes, uh, my mother's no longer with us, and I wish I had, you know, an uh, opportunity to go more in depth about her experiences. I know she had uh, seen a ghost once or twice, had had poltergeist activity happen uh, in the house uh, that I grew up in. Uh, but just was not aware of it at the time. And I wish I had more of an opportunity to, you know, get the, the fine details about it. I, apparently, it wasn't just my great grandmother uh, who had abilities. Apparently, there is a family uh, uh, a tradition of that to some degree. But unfortunately, I don't know all the, uh, the, the fine details. Um, the as a, as, a, as a young child, I, I may or may not have had uh, a strange experience. Uh, I did not even remember this for years. And people asked me you know, how I got interested. And I would just say from reading stuff. But there, there was uh, an ongoing incident uh, in my youth. I don't know how old I was, but I was in a, a crib. So I was you know, pretty little. Uh, you know, a crib with a you know, typical vertical wood slats so you don't fall out of the crib. And my, my crib was up, pushed up against the wall so I could reach through the wood slats and, and touch uh, the wall in the bedroom I was in. And I, uh, I have a distinct memory of tapping on the wall between the wood slats of the crib, you know, tap, 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 tap. And I remember my mother coming into the room and goes, why in God's name are you rapping on the wall? And I remember my response was, oh, I'm talking to the ghosts that live in the wall. And, you know, I, I rap and, and they rap back at me. Uh, I have no memory of why I was doing that, what the instigation was, but I distinctly remember that I would rap on the walls. That the purpose was to talk with the ghosts who lived in the wall. And I remember explaining that to my mother who just rolled her eyes and, and left my, to my own devices. Uh, this apparently went on for a while. It was not like a one-time thing on one day. I had, you know, I would I would rap uh, with the ghosts. Uh, the one thing that uh, uh, intrigues me more than the other things is that, you know, as an infant, apparently I had enough of a conceptual conceptual awareness of the concept of a ghost to be able to tell my mother that's what I was doing and that's why I was communicating with. I don't know where, you know, that knowledge of even that word came from or even applying that word uh, to a, you know, a particular situation and uh, for some reason I was knocking on the wall uh, with the understanding that something was knocking back at me uh, that might have been just you know childhood imagination the, the line between reality and fantasy and, and uh, in some uh, in a brain you know that young and undeveloped that the, the line is not that solid so I could have been you know having you know a very strong imagination that I'm talking with ghosts because maybe I saw them on a movie where they were rapping on a wall or something I just I don't remember so I really cannot apply any uh, validation to this or even make a judgment call you know was there anything really happening 
But there's two ways of looking at it. You, you of course, from a from a critical, from a cynical, from a skeptical perspective, could put forth the argument you just did that actually it's the infant mind, it's the childhood imagination, and that can pretty much excuse any flight of fancy that the mind might have because you're just young. So ah, we shrug that off. He's too young. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's supposition as you just uh, as you just proclaimed that actually the opposite way of looking at it being. The, the infant mind and the young mind is so open and it has been, uh, it proved might not be the word, but it's been proved on many, 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 many times in many, many different ways that actually the, that, that juvenile mind is way more open to these things uh, and is a blanker canvas for something like spirit communication than a, a, a tainted adult mind is. So, Clearly, you're not going to know one way or the other, and there's no way to ever kind of put that argument to bed. But um, true, but, but I agree with you completely. Uh, the uh, a study of the literature of the field does strongly indicate that children are more perceptive to these experiences, uh, and then grow out of it after a certain age. And there are two ways you can look at that, uh, assuming that it is it is a real, you know, objective uh, thing they're experiencing. One is that uh, they have not been told yet that there are no such things as ghosts, and they experience what they experience uh, just naturally, and you know, and you know, tell people about it or not. Uh, but as you get older, uh, the adults, when you're young, the adults just look at you and smile and go, "Yes, yes, Randy, you know, you saw a ghost. Good for you." But as you get older and you tell those stories, the adults will pull you aside and say, "Hey." Stop saying crap like that. People are going to think you're crazy. You know, there are no such thing as a ghost. You have not seen a ghost. Stop saying that. After you've been told that enough times, you're going to stop saying it. And then you may actually stop seeing it uh, as you, uh, uh, you block that out as a, as a self-protective mechanism so you don't get yelled at. Uh, the other factor that may play into it is uh, developing brains change neurologically, physically, and chemically. Uh, the the uh, connections of the nerves and the synapses uh, develop and change uh, as we get older. I think your brain does not stop fully forming until you're in your 20s, and then it's set however it's going to be set. It's quite possible that uh, in the earlier stages of neural development that we are physically more sensitive to picking up things in our environment, and we lose that sensitivity to a degree as we get older. And it may be a combination of that and the uh, the, uh, the social programming that we all get as kids, you know, there are no ghosts, you know, your people are going to say you're crazy. So that, that sure. could apply to my situation. I just, you know, I have no, as you said, I have no way to evaluate that. Sure. Sure. Um, it's interesting. I've been, I've been reading quite a lot quite recently, uh, really extensive um, multi-year studies into children with memories of, of previous lives. Mm-hmm. of pre-birth memories which which i know to many, many people sounds very wacky but um really odd stories coming out of those studies of children who remember being in a certain place before they were inside their mother certain memories of kids picking mums really really weird things that that's that's that, a conversation for another day but children whose memories who when they when they come forward with these um these memories at three, four, whenever they can first start to articulate, they are encouraged to con- continue talking about them to either the parents or to the researchers, 
it's not something that they're told, hey, don't talk about that. However, it depends on the culture, depends on where they are. Sure, sure. But in some of these studies, actually, some of these kids have been encouraged to consider to, to continue remembering and trying to shed more light on it. And still, by age six, seven, the memory goes even when encouraged, which would lend to what you were just saying, that it is absolutely cultural shaping, but that actually there is something chemical and physical to it as well, where the the, the brain is developing to a point where, as you say, the synapses have just changed. They've just grown into an adult mind, and an adult mind just functions in that slightly different way, which doesn't allow that memory to exist, for example. And that's, that's quite a niche example, but... It shows that there is possibly more to it than just being to stop talking about ghosts. That it's maybe beyond. Your I've control. always been in, I've been intrigued for a long time by uh, uh, by uh, children, infants, uh, babies who seem to be reacting to and having you know baby talk conversations with somebody or something in the room. I, uh, I've had so many friends who've had you know uh, babies. Uh, 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 something I've been able to avoid in my life up to this point, but most of my friends have uh, had kids and I've gotten so many calls, you know, the, the baby's in the crib and she's, you know, looking up and trying to reach up, like reacting to something or someone uh, and, you know, talking, you know, you know, in, in baby talk, uh, specifically reacting. And uh, uh, I've told them, Hey, you know, as best as you can, you know, you know, keep a log of this, you know, write down when this is happening, who else is in the house, if there's anything on the TV in another room uh, the kid might be hearing. Uh, one of my friends, I loaned him uh, some of my equipment that I used to detect uh, environmental anomalies just to see if maybe, you know, when the, when the kid was, you know, reacting uh, uh, to somebody, uh, trying to reach out and, and touch somebody uh, to see if maybe there was some fluctuation in the local electromagnetic field uh, or something going on. And we could never time it so that he had the equipment in his hand you know, when he saw the baby doing this. But that's that's a universal phenomenon that people, you know, the baby, uh, babies and animals, you know, animals react to things that uh, you and I can't see. And that's happened enough that I've experienced. I've been in haunted uh, uh, houses where, uh, where a dog was a resident in the house and the dog, you know, would normally, you know, go throughout the house, go everywhere in the house. But uh, when we have a, like a haunted basement, and uh, the, the homeowner would say, whenever the activities in the basement, you know, Rex, the dog refuses to go down there, but Rex is going down there with us until the one night when we hear sounds in the basement, uh, Rex stands at the top of the stairs, just barking and, you know, uh, going into like an attack posture. And when we do go down the stairs, dog refuses to follow us, but it has up until that point. Uh, I think the best ghost detector to bring on a case you know forget magnetometers and infrared cameras bring a baby on one shoulder and a dog on the other shoulder i mean i can i've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old and i can tell you when you know them inside out as of course you do your own children i would be able to say if when mine's standing up in a cot and he's gobbling away i can tell you when that's normal and when that is not normal so when these parents say he wouldn't usually do that. It's so easy for everyone. So even when you've got kids to look at someone else's kids and say, oh, well, I know, but kids do weird. When it's your kid, I can tell you, I would know looking at my child on a baby monitor, his behavior, that that was a reaction to something, somebody, some external stimulus, not just him 
standing up or you know yeah, you wouldn't know a, a parent's going to know, gonna know. Uh, the same with your dog normal. i don't know if you have a dog but i also have a dog and i would know i would know his behavior the way he stands the way he barks the way because i've lived with him for eight years so you would know as a parent you would know as a dog owner you would know as a horse owner you know when that animal knows there's something wrong or different or anomalous so yeah, ba babies and dogs uh, definitely have a, a sensitivity, uh, and the yeah. and the babies it continues till like you said about uh, four, five, maybe six, uh, and it dies out. And yes, I am aware of the the correlation with the uh, the reincarnation studies. Uh, that's not my field of specialization, uh, but I, I've read the articles in the parapsychology journals. Uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson did a lot of the initial groundbreaking work in that field. It's been taken up by other uh, parapsychologists. Something seems to be going on. Uh, in, in some cultures, uh, the kids are actually pushed in that direction. I know some of the, uh, the Hindu uh, nations, uh, there is a family incentive for the child to remember a past life from a, as being in an affluent family in a higher economic and cultural strata. Uh, uh, in other cases, that's not there. And then that's not present in other countries, uh, you have uh, in, in India, reincarnation uh, is accepted. It's part of the religious uh, uh, culture. Uh, and if kids start talking about that, you know, it's encouraged or at least not discouraged. And in the U.S., there's not that uh, religious uh, baggage around it. And in the U.S. or the U.K., if uh, ch children start talking about these past life regressions, uh, I, I, I'm more interested in that because there's not the cultural expectation for them to have these memories uh, but on the flip side when they start talking about those memories that the parents are going to say quit talking nonsense you're making this up or a school teacher will say you know you know little Bobby you know goes to school and tells lies to all of his classmates so uh, I would not be surprised if uh, well the the memories may naturally fade away around six years old I think in Western uh, countries, uh, those memories may be just socially pushed out of the kid uh, well before that, as they learn they're going to get yelled at or called liars. Same as seeing ghosts. Well, I've, I've worked one uh, haunting case in the UK. Uh, I was there for a week. Uh, investigating a haunted uh, uh, manor on the uh, in Gloucestershire uh, near the uh, Welsh border, uh, which made me realize the biggest difference is that you guys have had a country a lot longer than we have, and you have buildings that have been around and have been occupied for a lot longer than our oldest structures are. Uh, this uh, the house that I investigated was. Uh, at, uh, the story is it's the oldest continuously occupied house in England, been around since the Saxon days, uh, portions of the structure. So uh, if, uh, if hauntings are caused, uh, there are two explanations or two hypotheses for hauntings. One is that's a ghost, that's a surviving human consciousness or spirit, which is in the environment and you know, interacting with us. The other hypothesis is that's just a residual uh, recording of past events, past emotions, trauma that record themselves in the environment. And when the right person 
or a child or dog who is sensitive to picking up on that goes into that environment, they can decode it and play it back and have an experience. Uh, whichever of those explanations is, is the appropriate uh, uh, theory. And I think they both apply depending on the specific case. Uh, if it's an environmental recording, you know, that uh, events, history, people's lives, their emotions, their uh, trauma records itself in the environment of a building or a cave or uh, you know, a plot of land, uh, uh, folks in the UK have uh, been at that land longer than we have, uh, than at least the, uh, the European settlers in the US have. Of course, we had Native Americans here uh, for a long time who had uh, experiences also. Uh, but you guys have had you know, more time for recordings to be made. Uh, if ghosts are dead people coming back, you guys have had uh, uh, more battles uh, you know, more uh, deaths uh, than we had in the U.S. In the U.S., we've had the Revolutionary War, the Civil War uh, in the 1800s. You guys have had uh, much longer history of battles, conquests, you know, traumatic death and emotion. Uh, so more time, more opportunities for, uh, for a ghost to be created, however that could work. So a, a large part of the difference is, is physical, you know, the structures and the land. The other difference, uh, I think, historically has been in the approach of investigators. Uh, UK investigation technique, and, and I have to say historically, uh, has been uh, uh, oriented towards the spiritualist approach, uh, the early investigations by the Ghost Club, by the Society for Psychical Research, uh, focused on uh, medium studies, seances, uh, trying to uh, determine evidence of the existence of surviving human spirits uh, with, a, with a holistic approach, you know, going in, you know, observing a seance, seeing if contact could be made, uh, going to a haunted house, uh, having a vigil overnight, you know, in a room, you know, staying quiet, see what you can experience. That's the traditional historic image of, of ghost hunting that's been written about for hundreds of years. Uh, the U.S. approach has historically been different. Uh, uh, the U.S. approach was more parapsychology than psychical research. Our, uh, our uh, formative uh, impetus uh, into uh, this arena was laboratory-based. Uh, the, uh, the American Society for Psychical Research, uh, which sort of spun off from the British SPR in the 1800s, uh, followed the, uh, the spiritualist approach also following SPR guidelines. But very quickly, as we moved into the, uh, into the 20th century, uh, it moved to a laboratory interest in uh, uh, NESP, clairvoyance, uh, recognition, uh, a psychokinesis in some case, where the, the focus on it was not, hey, you know, let's investigate dear Aunt Edna coming back from the grave. Let's investigate the human mind and how we interact with the environment and you know, why we perceive uh, these things, uh, which may not objectively be there, uh, or if there is something there, you know, how it interacts with human neurology and psychology, a more a, a clinical aspect. And, the, and the, the, uh, the admittedly romantic approach of, hey, let's go out on a ghost vigil and see if we can contact, you know, uh, uh, your 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 dear deceased, you know, uh, family member. That fell through the wayside in the U.S. to a large degree. Uh, 
after we, we went through our wave of spiritualism in the US in the 1800s, uh, following the example of the, of the UK. Uh, then during the uh, First World War, there was a resurgence uh, because so many people were killed overseas in battle. So many widows were left behind. There became a uh, cottage industry of, uh, of alleged mediums who would say, hey, we'll, we'll try to contact uh, your, you know, your deceased husband. Uh, and the bulk of that was, you know, of course, you know, fraudulent, uh, maybe uh, with sporadic, you know, real incidents occurring. Uh, but after the First World War, we shifted very quickly into let's leave the ghost part out of it. And let's look at, you know, ESP telepathy, psychokinesis as an explanation for these things, uh, at, to the point that today, most uh, researchers, most parapsychologists, I'm talking people who have an academic background, uh, academically credentialed, uh, who work from an institution or a university setting and apply the scientific method. Most of the folks who are parapsychologists uh, in the US, most of them don't believe in ghosts. Uh, a, a handful are open to the possibility, but most are into lab uh, ESP studies. A, a smaller group will look at uh, ghost hauntings and poltergeists. And out of that group, most of them do not believe it's spiritual or you know, survival uh, of, of the human spirit. They believe it's other explanations. Uh, now there is, there are a few, I, and I know and have worked with a few who do are open to the idea, hey, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, let's assume it might be a duck. It might actually be a ghost as we, uh, as we define that. Uh, but it's a minority and there are not, and these folks are working, you know, out of a lab or out of the university, uh, much far fewer labs and universities today than we've had in the past. Uh, but most of them are not doing field investigations. Uh, they've abandoned uh, spontaneous uh, paranormal field investigations. And uh, they may say, you know, they may sit, write a journal article. They may give an interview to the media. Well, a ghost may be, you know, a dead person coming back. Uh, but they're not actually going out to haunted houses, except for a couple of people who are still doing that. Uh, they've abandoned the field to the lay amateur researcher, which is not, and it's by itself a bad thing. There have never been enough scientists to go out and, and handle all these, these investigations. Uh, so you need amateurs who have some knowledge of the field and have uh, knowledge of investigative techniques who have the ability uh, not to be uh, too credulous and to be able to be discriminating uh, in what they're looking for and, and what their observations are. The problem is uh, in, in the US, uh, the field has been taken over by thousands of amateur ghost hunting groups uh, with no training, with no uh, knowledge of psychology, neurology, physics. They have no idea that this has been uh, investigated for hundreds of years. They have no idea you know, that the SPR exists, uh, that the American branch exists. They have no idea that J.B. Ryan has studied parapsychology, that there is a, uh, a theory for poltergeists called re recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which relies on a human being affecting the environment as opposed to a ghost affecting the environment. They have no knowledge of this. They have, uh, they're out looking for phenomena that we do not think you legitimately find in, in real cases. They're running around graveyards, you know, uh, taking digital photographs of dust particles 
that are illuminated by their flashes and screaming, oh my God, look at all these ghost orbs I photographed. And that's what the, uh, the field has degenerated to here. Uh, in, in the UK, uh, there is still the SPR. There's a group called uh, ASAP, the Association for Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, which is a, uh, a very credible scientifically oriented group. And what they do is they train investigators from the UK's myriad you know, uh, of amateur ghost hunting groups, but they're given some basic training on how to do an investigation, you know, what evidence is and what it is not, what the different theories are. So these guys are not just going in cold. In the US, we have nothing that even approaches that. There, there is no uh, uh, national body. Uh, we used to have an American SPR that is now totally defunct uh, and never really got involved in field work in the get-go. Uh, so uh, in the UK, there are a lot, I think, about Yvette Fielding and Most Haunted, you know, running around screaming in a dark, you know, castle at night. Uh, you guys have that, you know, uh, too, just like we do. But you also have trained investigators. You have national organizations which set up some standards for training, for investigative protocols, and for ethics uh, in doing investigations. We do not have that in the U.S., and it's obvious. Uh, I don't think. Um, I don't think the well. I don't think the explosion of of network TV and its fascination with these shows has helped one bit. In fact, I'll tell you, it hasn't, because you ha now have these TV ghost hunters going out and um, I don't want to say faking evidence, though I know for a fact at times they absolutely do. Mm -hmm. um, and making millions, making themselves big names, attracting massive followings. And to the layperson, um, they're showing that actually, look, if you go to a haunted house and you bring some of this kit with you and you ask the right questions and you do the right things, you can get, you can get this evidence in inverted commas of ghosts in inverted commas. And what that's doing is that's showing the masses, the mass population that you can go and do that. Actually, what a lot of people, and it's widely recognized, but what a lot of people aren't seeing is that's made for TV. I'm not saying it's entirely fabricated viewing, but it is somewhat fabricated viewing. And it is certainly heavily, heavily edited and tainted viewing, which if is not painting the accurate picture. So you have, as you said, these thousands of ghost hunting groups who are springing up, who are going out thinking the orb is this and the noise is that because that's what TV is showing them, it is. And I think actually behind that massive veneer, which is probably more than a veneer, it's about an inch here on the front of it all, the smarter minds behind it, even over here, are now saying, yeah, but that's not what this is. Um, it is comforting, it may be from a spirit and it may be from a spirit of the dead, but it may be only able to be perceived in your own mind. And the, mm -hmm. the research going into these things is, a, fascinating, B, in its infancy, despite the fact that the SPR is 200 years old, um, but shows that actually the science behind it is nowhere near where it needs to be to actually explain these things. And so to think that it's a spirit of the dead, sure, could well be, and I'm not saying it's not. And I like to think I'd like to think it would be. That would be lovely to think that they're, they're able to go to a place where they can then communicate back. And I'm, I'm certainly in no place to rule that out. 
But what I think the conclusion, the amateur halfway through our research conclusion has to be is we don't know anything like what we need to know in order to form an actual scientific conclusion of this. And that's why that level of research into the, the consciousness aspect of it must continue as a priority over trying to get voices because it's all good going into a haunted house and capturing a voice, capturing a shadow. Until you can rule out the human aspect of that, then you can't rule in anything else. Um, well, we, we know that uh, you don't have a haunting that's reported or a poltergeist that's reported unless you have a human experiencer or witness who experiences it and, and tells somebody. Uh, so you have uh, the, the human factor, the human consciousness has to be present in the location to perceive the activity or there's nothing to investigate. There's nothing to follow up on. You don't have an experience. Um, and uh, you experience things through your senses uh, and through the sensory processing areas of your brain. It is, a, uh, it is the interaction of mind uh, and, and body, how the eyes you know, send a signal to the brain, uh, how your ears send a signal to your, uh, to your brain to process that. It seems that in some of these cases, uh, we're dealing with uh, phenomena which is by definition at least partially hallucinatory, uh, that uh, you're seeing something, but there's not an object there that's reflecting light to your eyes. The image is being sent, bypassing the physical senses, and is being sent and processed directly in the sensory processing areas of the brain. So we cannot understand what's at play, what this phenomena might be, unless we are looking at uh, human uh, neurology, human psychology, because everything we experience is interpreted uh, by us, by our cultural, religious ex expectations in our, in our past you know, experiences. Uh, so it involves you know, psychology, neurology, it's going to involve uh, consciousness studies. Uh, you know, uh, there seems to be some suggestive evidence that you know, your human consciousness, that which makes us what we are, whether you want to call it, you know, spirit, soul, you know, consciousness, there is some evidence that uh, it seems to be able to exist, at least temporarily, separate from the physical body, uh, through an out-of-body experience, through a near-death experience, uh, suggestive evidence. So if, if, if that can happen while you're still alive, you know, maybe it can happen if your body is physically dead. You're, what makes you, you can still exist in some form. Uh, we need uh, th that, how the mechanism of how that works, uh, even beyond consciousness studies, that might touch into the arena of, uh, of quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Uh, I think we're just starting to touch on those areas now. And we have uh, physicists who are also parapsychologists. And they are uh, trying to mesh some of the findings in, in uh, quantum physics to some of the observations in parapsychology. Uh, so yes, we, uh, you cannot just go out there and just randomly wave around detectors and uh, take photographs of dust particles and run a tape recorder because uh, there's no context. You might get a sound, you might get some strange looking image, but you, there's no context. You, uh, you know, why are you at that house in the first place? Have people reported experiences? If they have, then focus on those experiences. What have people you know, uh, felt, seen, heard, 
what do the people think they experienced? Why do they, you know, why do they call us up and say it's paranormal? Why are they applying that label to it? Uh, uh, this is a multidisciplinary uh, uh, field of study. Uh, you know, some people are specialists in one area. You know, not everybody is a jack of all trades, uh, but you have to be to a degree. You at least have to be aware that there's a physics aspect, that there is a uh, neurology aspect. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, consult with people who are experts uh, in those fields if something uh, happens on your case that really seems to impact in that area. Uh, but it's, it's much more than running around, running a tape recorder uh, and hearing you know, a, a rustling sound on it and screaming you know, to the TV cameras, oh my God, there's a demon in the basement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not what I do. That's not what my colleagues do. Unfortunately, there are thousands of people out there who that is exactly what they do because their only education, their only knowledge of the field is what they see on these television shows. That's all they're exposed to. They've never read a book on the subject. Uh, they don't subscribe to the SPR journal. Uh, uh, they are just clueless. And they think that going into a house uh, for a few hours overnight in the dark, and there is no logical reason to do an investigation in the dark. You're just gonna wind up hurting yourself. Uh, but they think, yeah, you, you, come, you come in and the uh, a ghost is identified, proven to exist, and then resolved one way or the other before the end credits roll. And that happens every week on demand on like 10 to 15 different TV shows. You know, you have uh, there are several in the UK, several in the US. They're all doing this every week. And every week they're finding a ghost or now more commonly uh, demons in the basement. People watch that, that's all they know. And then these folks are running out doing what they call investigations and it's causing I'm afraid at this point, possibly irreparable damage uh, to legitimate psychical research. It's uh, becoming uh, not just a joke to the general public, but it's becoming a joke to those of us who have a real uh, serious interest in the field. Well, I got contacted by uh, Channel 4 uh, in London. Uh, they had been contacted by uh, the Macer Wright family uh, who had lived uh, uh, at the hall uh, for quite a while. Uh, the, uh, the current homeowner, Donald, had uh, grown up as a child living in the house, had been in the family uh, uh, all of his life. Uh, and they'd experienced stuff in the house. Uh, Donald told me stories of how, uh, as a child, he'd be in his bedroom and he would hear footsteps walking across his bedroom floor towards his bed, uh, which is interesting because his floor was carpeted, but he heard footsteps on a wood floor, uh, which uh, uh, on first appearance indicates it's some sort of environmental recording of a past experience of somebody walking across the floor before it had a carpet, but he would have that happen regularly. And sometimes it would approach the bed and I believe uh, he reported they would pull uh, the blankets off of him at night and scare the heck out of him, which is not a residual haunting. Uh, residual recordings in the environment do not pull your bed clothes off of you. 
So it was you know, uh, not just a, a recording of the past events, uh, but many things happened to him, his other family members. They had uh, staff that worked at the house, uh, working in a gift shop, because the house was also part of a museum. Uh, due to its history, uh, there was a stables, there was a woman who worked in the stables, and she reported uh, that uh, she was working there one evening and a, she saw a black uh, uh, misty cloud materialize in the corner of the, uh, of the stable and the cloud enveloped her and she felt it choking her and she couldn't breathe. And she started screaming and flailing and then she watched the, the, the thing just dissipate. Uh, the house had been haunted for uh, hundreds of years, if not longer. There are reports that we found in the local historical archives that the local church held of uh, people reporting uh, ghostly activity going back at least to the 1800s, uh, possibly more. Uh, several different hauntings, different apparitions had been seen. So the place is very haunted, but it was primarily a residual recording type haunting. People were seeing events from the past playback. Uh, uh, soldiers from the Civil War, you know, having a, a sword fight, uh, you know, soldiers marching uh, across the lawn, then walking through a wall and disappearing. Uh, but the phenomena had been taking a, uh, a more physical path lately. The, uh, the woman in the stables being assaulted, uh, Donald, you know, uh, his childhood memories of the covers being pulled off. Uh, the phenomena seemed to be increasing and it changing the dynamics a little bit. So they reached out, you know, to the media, uh, you know, saying if they could find some ghost hunters to come out and check it out. So Channel 4 reached out to me, uh, flew me over, uh, teamed me up with uh, a psychologist, uh, Nick Rose uh, from the University of the West of England. Uh, he's a parapsychologist, but his approach was from the psychology and he did not believe in ghosts. This was all the human brain to him. Uh, we had a, a person uh, who was a specialist in ley lines and earth energies. Uh, we had a, uh, a, uh, a reverend uh, from the Anglican Church, uh, uh, Reverend Tom Willis, uh, who was a paranormal uh, specialist and an uh, exorcist for the church. And we had a, a medium, Maureen Conway. Uh, and I led the team. And the idea was spend a week there, each of us using our own approach. You know, Reverend Willis would, you know, you know, try to pick up some sort of negative spirit or influence. Uh, the uh, ley line specialist uh, uh, claimed that the house was at the intersection point of several major ley lines, and he figured that he felt that uh, in, uh, uh, influenced the haunting. Uh, we did some uh, historical archaeological archaeological research. Uh, there was an active archaeological dig on the site of the manor. Uh, there was a, uh, a temple they uncovered, which was a temple to the uh, Celtic river goddess Sabrina. And uh, it had been there for a very long time. And the area had a reputation of, of being a mystical spot where you could have experiences, uh, see things uh, on the other side of the veil. Uh, and that goes back uh, uh, to ancient history. Uh, then they built uh, the Saxon house there. Then they built up, you know, further structures. So the place has always had, always had a reputation of being haunted or mystical to some point or other. So we spent our week there trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, I did not encounter anything uh, which struck me as being uh, ghostly uh, uh, while I was there. Uh, I did pick up some uh, uh, anomalous energy signatures on some of my devices. Uh, 
uh, which were just that. They were anomalous. I cannot explain why I was picking them up, but they did not correlate with any other activity, which told me, hey, I'm picking up signs of a ghostly presence. That just was not there. Uh, Reverend Willis uh, told us that he thought he was picking up the presence of a angry, hostile, and confused uh, uh, spirit. Uh, the uh, I don't remember what the medium said she picked up on, but she uh, she she picked up ghosts every corner she went to. Uh, the psychologist Nick Rose felt not. Er, this is just because it's a spooky old house with a history behind it. You know, people are you're looking into a dark corner, and their imagination is uh, 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 taking its toll on them. Um, so we all, you know, uh, did our little input after the week. We compared notes and uh, you know, talked uh, for the TV show. Uh, the one interesting thing that happened, uh, which uh, was our, our little Steven Spielberg movie mo movie moment, at at the last day, the, the whole week we were there, and this when they did the TV show, the, the week investigation was cut and edited to make it look like we were there for one night. In fact, the whole week I was there, I had to wear the same set of clothes, which the production crew washed and laundered for me every night so they could cut the scene together. Uh, but the whole week we were there, it was overcast, uh, dank, dreary, I guess, what do you guys call a typical English uh, yep, just, uh, atmosphere? Uh, uh, but it was very uh, melancholy. You know, the, there were no birds chirping. And this was, you know, uh, uh, I don't remember what time of the year it was. I think it was spring, uh, late spring. Uh, you know, I loved it. I, I love the you know the foggy, misty. You know, it just you know, it hits the romantic you know part of me. Uh, but the whole week it was like that. The last day we were there, uh, because Reverend Willis said he felt that there was some disturbed, angry soul there. The homeowner said, "Well, you know, Reverend, you know, can you do anything to help send this you know confused person on his way?" Yes, I certainly will try. So he went throughout the house doing uh, some sort of Anglican uh, minor exorcism ritual. Uh, not the kind of exorcism you do on a person, but you do on, on a building. So he was sprinkling holy water and reciting these prayers. Uh, and at the very last thing, he, he sprinkles his last spray, he goes to all the walls and hits them with holy water. The last wall, he does it and uh, says his little uh, ceremonial words and says, Amen. At the moment he said amen, the clouds parted, the sun came out, there were beams, you know, uh, uh, straight, you know, uh, solid looking beams of sunlight, you know, bursting through the clouds, illuminating the house. And we're all standing out front watching this. Uh, uh, I, the other investigators, the homeowners, the film crew all looked at each other like, whoa. Our jaws dropped because it was like a scene, you know, from a Steven Spielberg movie. You know, the priest has exercised oh, the house. But um, now I'm sh I am positive it was just a coincidental timing. But my goodness, what perfectly timed uh, coincidental timing! It, it, it was a moment. Actually, we were kind of you know, speechless for a few seconds. And after, uh, after we left, I, I kept in touch uh, for a little while with, with the homeowners who moved out and sold the property eventually. But I was speaking with Donald Macer Wright uh, uh, last year. Uh, he reached out to me to see how I was doing. And I asked him, hey, 
Have you heard any, you know, what, what happened after we left and uh, what's the current status? He said the activity continued in the house, but it died down in intensity. Uh, uh, our being there and, and maybe what Reverend uh, Willis did, I don't know. Maybe that had an effect on calming things down to a bit. Uh, and he did not know what happened in the house after uh, he and the family had moved out. Going through a, a series of hands. It was a, a balloon launch center for a while. It was some sort of a artistic cultural center for a while. I uh, don't know what it is now, but he uh, did not have contact with the people, so I don't know. But it, it was it was a fun case. Not as much stuff happened as I would have hoped, but it was great to get over to the and UK. What was the show called? Uh, I was, was uh, the show titled when it went out. Yeah, it was. Uh, Channel Four had a. Uh, a series called short stories and i believe every week they would do a uh, hour-long documentary on a different subject uh for this one they picked haunted houses it was called uh short stories ghost stories or ghost short stories ghost hunters channel four have uh, their online services the uh the on-demand services where a lot of their back catalogs still available so uh, i'm sure if someone if people want to see that they can they can go and dig out that episode still it will be it will be in the archive somewhere you can you can still it was a fun investigation it was very cinematic it was a spooky house a spooky atmosphere uh well filmed uh i i did not make too much of a fool out of myself i i i think uh but uh while i really wish that uh, i had found you know some you know, objective evidence uh, of something going on uh, which sadly I did not, but th that last moment uh, when Reverend Willis parted the clouds that made the whole trip worth it. Well, I, I've uh, had a two or three incidents which uh, were not scary, but I think, well, yeah, one of them was scary. Uh, a couple of them were spooky. Uh, I'll I'll tell you about one that I've not discussed uh, recently uh, on different venues. Uh, I was living in a house in New Jersey. Uh, I and uh, another cop, uh, we had, uh, uh, we rented out a basement apartment. Actually, it was his mother's house. We rented a, a basement apartment. He had his bedroom. I had mine in a shared living room and, and kitchen area. Uh, the house was haunted. Uh, we had reports of the house being haunted since the 1920s. Uh, people in the house, uh, including my roommate and his mother and house guests, had been seeing an apparition of, of a female walking around uh, when nobody was in the house. Uh, did not look like a ghost, looked like a solid, looked like a woman was walking through the house. And that had been reported you know, uh, for years. I had never seen it, uh, but several of my friends uh, from the police department uh, had seen this and assumed that Nick's mother was back home from work and there's no one there. Uh, that had been going on for a while. People were also seeing shadows movement out of the corner of their eye. I was aware of this. I was fascinated by it. I interviewed witnesses, but never experienced it myself. I'm uh, home uh, one day uh, with my uh, girlfriend. Uh, we're, uh, we're asleep in, in, in our bedroom. I couldn't sleep, so I got up. I, I left her alone in the dark bedroom. I went into the living room and was reading a book. Uh, it's about uh, two o'clock in the morning. I hear her calling from the bedroom going, Randy, Randy. 
And uh, I call back from the living room. I go, yeah, what's up? I'm out here. She screams, comes bolting out of, of the uh, bedroom. And I said, what happened? She says, I saw what I thought was you standing in the corner, like a black shadow. And I could see, you know, the, the, the torso shape. You had legs, arms. I, I said, why, you know, why is Randy standing, staring at me in a dark room? And when she heard my voice call the living room, she, she freaked out. Like, uh, that's interesting. Uh, she did not want to come back to the house for a while. Uh, maybe uh, a week or so later, I'm, uh, I came home early from work because I had a headache. So I, I, I called out sick from the office, uh, came home, was uh, laying in bed, trying to sleep. Uh, my roommate, Nick, uh, was at work with the uh, narcotics task force with the uh, county sheriff's office. Uh, he came, uh, he stopped by the house uh, while I was trying to sleep, he came back with a uh, another detective from the city police department. They were working on a task force together. So they come into the house. Uh, I'm uh, I hear noise, talking and mumbling. I'm thinking, well, I'm here alone. You know, Nick's at work. Uh, nobody's in the house. So I'm a little bit concerned. I'm starting to hear you know, the voices. I'm laying in bed very quietly. We'd had a series of break-ins in the neighborhood. My car had gotten broken into within that month. So I'm thinking, okay, now they've broken into the house. So I'm laying there very quietly. Uh, I reach, I uh, keep my sidearm, the nightstand next to me. So I grab my gun because uh, I don't want to get caught by somebody walking into the bedroom while I'm there. So I'm, I'm being very, very quiet. And I'm, I'm hearing, uh, again, you know, more mumbling outside uh, my door. And I see uh, shadows of feet passing underneath the illuminated strip underneath my bedroom door. So I figured, oh, there's people out there. There's more than one. So I'm sitting there, got my gun out. Uh, I hear more and more mumbling. So I decide, okay, I'm not going to just sit here and wait. You know, I'm going to, uh, uh, if I'm going to have uh, this confrontation, it's going to be on my timing when I initiate it. So I went to the door, uh, did the, the classic uh, TV cop thing. I, I kicked the door open, broke the lock, and I, I splintered the wood around the lock on the door. Door burst open. I got my gun pointed, and there's two guns pointed at me. Uh, uh, Nick and uh, Denny from the, the city police uh, thought that somebody was in my room and broken in. And what and what drew their attention is they saw uh, the bottom of my door was about two inches above the, the floor. So there's a big gap. And you could see they said they saw feet walking back and forth uh, behind my door. And they figured, well, uh, you know, Randy wouldn't even if he was home, he wouldn't be walking back and forth. You know, uh, like some psychopath, you know, across the door. Uh, so they were actually going, you know, Randy, Randy, very quietly, you know, trying to see if it was me, which is the mumbling I heard. And then I, and then they tried the doorknob, and when they tried the doorknob, that's why I kicked the door open. Uh, so they said, Randy, what the? You know, after we put the guns back down and we came out of it, not shooting, you know, three cops, not having a, you know, crossfire. Uh, I'm saying, dudes, you know, why were you jiggling the door and, and whispering and stuff? They said, well, why were you walking back and forth you know, in front of the, uh, the door? I said, I wasn't. I was laying in bed sound asleep until I heard you guys. Then after I did, I stayed on the bed very quietly, just, you know, trying to see what was going on. But they distinctly saw shadow, which they interpreted as feet walking back and forth. This was, again, right after my girlfriend had seen the dark shadow with legs in the room staring at her.
uh, within within a month, two months, the same year, I'm laying in that in same bed in my uh, bedroom uh, about one o'clock in the morning reading a book. Uh, can't fall asleep. I have to go to work in the morning. So I said, okay, I got to put this book down, turn the light out and try to sleep. As soon as I turn the light out, even before I could set the book down on my nightstand, in the far right-hand corner of the room, in total darkness, I saw a human, humanoid-shaped torso figure in the corner that was blacker than the absolute blackness of the room. Uh, it was not moving. It was just standing there. I could see it. Uh, even Such at, a at common the moment, thing to hear, that blacker than the blackness. It's something yeah. it's and so at the often. moment, that struck me because I, I realized I, the room was so dark, I could not see my hand in front of me. So total pitch blackness. However, I could still perceive something blacker than that, just standing there. And it wasn't just visual. Uh, a, a, a wave of fear involved me, a sense that whatever it was, was radiating absolute malevolence hostility and hatred and it, it scared the crap out of me so i'm sitting there holding the book in my hand i'm afraid to even set the book down i don't want to move i don't want to do anything that will draw attention to myself because i had the uh, kind of ridiculous thought that you know i don't want to notice here i'm here and i don't want to know that i have noticed it which is ridiculous it's in the room with me i've been in the room reading if it's there obviously it knows i'm there but that was the thought process I was having, uh, and I'm sure part of that was instilled by a little bit of stress I was going through from, you know. You can't try to rationalize these moments. Yeah. Don't. So, uh, uh, so at that moment, I knew what my girlfriend had experienced and what made her run out of the room. So I am not an overly religious person. Uh, I, I have a basic Christian faith, but I'm not a holy roller. Uh, but I started praying. I say, I say, you know, silently you know, trying to make as little movement and, you know, as I, you know, noise as I could, just saying, Lord, you know, whatever this, it's, this is not right, whatever it is, you know, let's make it go away, you know, let me, you know, deal with it another day, but not right now. And so I was just, you know, fervently, you know, silently praying to myself uh, to say, go away. As I was doing that, I, uh, I felt, and I don't know how to describe it, how I felt it, but I just felt the sensation that it was slowly dissipating. Uh, I don't know if I saw the, the black shape actually dissipating visually, but what I recall is I felt that sense of uh, hostility, of hatred starting to fade away and the room got, uh, the atmosphere got lighter. It was still pitch black, but it just, you know, felt uh, friendly as opposed to that trauma. So I, I, I laid there until the sun came up. I didn't even want to get up and get out of the room until the sun came up and it was coming through the window, got up, went to work. I go, that was an experience. Two days later, exact same thing happened. Uh, I, I, I can't say it was exactly two days later. It was within the same week. Uh, around the same time, I'm laying in bed. I've been watching TV in the bedroom, turned the TV off, turned the light out. This time it took a little while. It was about uh, half an hour or so. And I'm, uh, I'm trying to recall times. It might it might have been longer than half an hour. It might have been 10 minutes. This was, this was a while back. Uh, but I'm, I'm laying there and slowly I started feeling that same sensation radiating from the same corner of the room. I go, God, here we go again. So once again, I started uh, the prayer. It seemed to work once. I tried it again. Uh, I don't know how much time passed. I don't know if it, it took 10 minutes or if it took three hours. I really have no 
sense of the passage of time. But again, another uh, segment of fervent praying, I felt it dissipate, it went away, uh, never happened again. And I stayed uh, in that apartment, in that room for another couple of years. So it never happened to me again. Uh, girlfriend never wanted to come back to the house. I had to go see her in, in New York where she lived. Uh, I told uh, my roommate and other family members about it and they go, well, yeah, we know something's going on because they knew about my girlfriend's experience. Obviously the three of us have been pointing guns at each other. Uh, so that, uh, that totality of all those events in the same place during the same general time period culminating with my two uh, uh, overwhelming experiences uh, in the bedroom uh, convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is something objectively real with some aspects of this phenomena. And while I've been, uh, my background and knowledge and, and training has been in forensics, uh, the, uh, the, the spooky aspect of, of all this, I approach from a parapsychological approach. You know, uh, how's inner, uh, neurology, psychology, you know, maybe there is a surviving human consciousness present, but it's still a human consciousness. It's a person who's no longer in their body. There's nothing, you know, really terrifying about that when you dissect it. This wasn't human, or if it was human, it was doing a very good imitation of something inhuman. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm not uh, overtly religious. I, I don't deal with demons. That's not my bag. I, uh, I think most of this stuff about demonic stuff is uh, either made up bullshit or it's, you know, people really misinterpreting uh, and uh, other phenomena. But this, uh, this was another bag altogether. I, to this day, I don't know what it was. I'm not going to say it was demonic because I'm, uh, I refuse to allow myself to believe that stuff's real. Uh, about it was something that exceeded the boundaries of uh, of a residual haunting in the environment. It exceeded the boundaries of a uh, you know uh, Aunt Edna coming back from the grave, uh, you know, to check up on you know, uh, you know her beloved Randy. This was something uh, hostile, negative, frightening, uh, and it happened twice to me and to my girlfriend once, and. Uh, definitely real. Uh, and I, I really can't expound on it beyond that. It had a profound effect on me. I get a little shiver now, even, you know, remembering it to talk about it. Uh, but thank goodness it's never happened again. Uh, it was like an outlier, you know, uh, something totally outside of what I normally look into. And it may have been something totally different than what I normally deal with. Uh, who knows? Uh, I, I've gotten you know, a couple of calls and referrals for cases that I just cannot follow up on because I can't physically get out to the uh, location. But I, I do a lot of phone consultation. You know, a large part of that is you know, just trying to calm people down who are scared uh, because they watch these TV shows. Uh, uh, and I just try to explain to them, well, you know, don't jump to the demonic conclusion. Here are some different possibilities. Here are some different phenomena and the, uh, the hypotheses that we think it might be. And here are some things to try, you know, to reduce the fear factor. So I, uh, even not being able to get out to the field, I'm still doing that to a degree. 
Thank you very much, uh, Rani, for taking the time to speak with us tonight. It's been fascinating to hear about all your experiences and your your theories behind some of it. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. So yeah, thank you for thank you for coming on. Yeah, the pleasure is mine, Mark. Thank you. Peer Beyond the Veil has been written and presented by myself, Mark Watson, as part of the Fearscape Media Network. Music and soundtracks are credited and licensed to Purple Planet and to Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. All rights are reserved by our parent company, MLW Publishing. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash Peer Beyond the Veil or on Twitter at Peer Beyond the Veil or at Peer Beyond 2020. Please click the like and subscribe buttons when you see them, most importantly wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us to attract the attention we need to keep the show going, to get the guests that you all want to hear from, and to help more and more people 